his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, WTIC-FM and Light 100.5, WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning, and we are pleased to be joined by Andrew Labonte. He is a wildlife biologist with the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. He is DEEP's deer person. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Tell us how the deer population is doing this year in Connecticut. I know last fall, right around this time, there was kind of a die-off. Has there been a rebound? The population only in a very small area had experienced a small die-off due to some uh, disease outbreak. But as of this year, we haven't had any confirmed cases of the hemorrhagic disease that we documented last year. So we expect the population to uh, be in pretty good shape this year. It has been growing over the years, certainly, hasn't it? It certainly has uh, up until a point. But now, uh, due to some changes in regulations and tag issuance, the population is more or less what we expect to be stabilized or in some areas actually declining. And when you talk about tagging, you're, you're talking about hunting season, which is underway for archery for deer, not yet firearms. Uh, when did that start and how is it going so far? Uh, the archery season started September 15th. Uh, it's been going pretty well so far. We're at just over about 700 deer. We have essentially, uh, we monitor it at the end of the month, so we really don't have a exact comparison. But we expect it to be similar to years past, somewhere around 1,000 deer or so. And when does firearm hunting season for deer begin? Uh, firearms hunting begins November 14th this year. Are there limits to how many deer a hunter can bag and the days they can hunt, things like that? Uh, yeah, during the archery season, a hunter can harvest uh, up to four deer, two antlerless deer, two either sex deer. And during the firearm season, a hunter can harvest one either sex deer and one antlerless deer. Certainly, this is something that sportsmen look forward to, but it's also a way to help control the deer population. Yeah, it's certainly a mechanism to control the deer population, especially in the urban areas down in Fairfield County and along the shoreline towns uh, where we do experience the most conflicts due to a high number of deer vehicle accidents, interactions with urban residents, deer coming in and consuming vegetation that they planted uh, throughout their yard. So, most of the archery hunting that occurs uh, is primarily in those towns uh, where firearms hunting is much more difficult. It seems that the same reasons for the, the issues between the increased number of human deer run-ins uh, are also the reason why maybe controlling the population is more difficult in that part of the state? Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, when you have uh, there is a firearms discharge ordinance, so you can't be within 500 feet of an occupied dwelling to discharge a firearm, and that uh, goes during the hunting season. So most of those areas would eliminate any kind of hunting except for archery hunting. So it makes uh, managing the population a lot more difficult in those areas, uh, just because 
it's much easier to harvest a deer with a firearm, and it takes a lot more skill to harvest a deer with a bow and arrow, essentially. So it, it does make a challenge. How have sportsmen embraced the, the archery season, which has kind of expanded over the years? Yeah, the archery season has expanded uh, quite uh, rapidly. We're now, over the last several years, harvesting more deer during the archery season than we are during the firearm season. And we made some changes in regulations some years ago uh, to allow the use of crossbows, which people more simulate with being more like a firearm. Uh, essentially, you still have a lot of restrictions with that weapon type, uh, but it doesn't take as much practice uh, and proficiency as it would with a normal type of archery equipment like a compound bow or a recurve bow because they uh, they have scopes on them and they're equipped uh, pre-drawn and the arrow is already knocked and loaded. So essentially it has a trigger like a, a gun, uh, but still is put in the archery season. There is a correlation between the number of deer bagged during a hunting season in Connecticut and the number of acorns that are on the ground. Explain that. Uh, yeah, so deer utilize specifically white oaks. Uh, that's their preferred food source during the fall and years in which they're aren't a lot of acorns on the ground, deer will utilize other types of forage and they move around a greater distance. So if a hunter is sitting stationary in a tree stand and there's not a lot of acorns on the ground, the deer tend to move around a lot more, uh, putting them in front of more hunters. And in years when there's a large acorn abundance, the deer don't have to go very far. So unless you're on the ground walking, which can cause some disturbance, obviously, um, it's going to be a lot more difficult to get in front of a deer or put yourself in front of a deer unless you're out pursuing them. Is it too early to tell what type of year this will be? Actually, um, our turkey biologist, Mike Gregonis, is in charge of doing the mass survey every year. And I was away on vacation, but he just told me today that the abundance of acorns this year is very low compared to what it was last year. So we would expect, based on that, that we should have a pretty good harvest this year, at least mainly in central and eastern uh, Connecticut. He did say that western Connecticut, Fairfield, Fairfield County, did have a pretty good acorn crop. Talk about the, the deer population in Connecticut overall, the, the number of deer you estimate live here. Uh, we estimate anywhere between 100 and 150,000 deer currently uh, in the state of Connecticut. What environment do deer like? Do they like living close to humans where maybe they can, you know, take some food from backyards and, and stuff? Or do they like to live far away from humans? Uh, it, it's variable. We certainly have a category of deer where you'd call urban deer that don't mind living close to the proximity of, of humans. And they actually uh, utilize those areas quite frequently, become less scared uh, because some people, you know, may put out motion-activated lights to deter deer from coming into their yards. Once they get accustomed to there being no negative effect from that, they'll come in and consume any type of ornamental plantings, many of which they like, uh, especially arborvitaes. So oftentimes residents plant things that the deer like, and that attracts them into the yards, and they really, without any negative effect, begin to then utilize those places. And family groups, as they produce more and more, they all become accustomed to that life of living close to residential areas. So they get a little more brazen. Oh, yeah, they definitely get a little more brazen. But there are some 
areas certainly and and some deer that still don't like being close to human contact for the gardeners out there what can they do to keep deer away if they they get used to certain measures to repel them there are plenty of varieties of repellents out there spray type repellents and fencing so in years in which there are not a lot of acorns and the deer are much hungrier and there's not as many natural food sources those are the years in which people have to use a little bit additive protection so the sprays that may have worked in the past when deer weren't as hungry may not work as well as years when there's not a lot of food out there or there's harsh winters in which the deer have to search more for food. So it's quite variable, but really an eight foot high chain link fence is your best measure of keeping deer out of your yard. Some of the less expensive plastic mesh type that aren't eight feet high, deer can push them in, go under them or go over them. If you aren't in love with the idea of an eight foot chain link fence in your backyard the way it might look aesthetically, uh, would you recommend maybe mixing up the methods you use to repel deer so they don't get used to one or the other? Uh, Yeah, you can certainly use mixed methods. Um, I know last year, just speaking with some folks, they had not had any problems with deer in the entire time they live at these locations, but this past year their arborvitaes got absolutely destroyed uh, during some of the winter when we had deeper snow and conditions were a lot harsher and there wasn't as many acorns. But combination of sprays, I've heard people use dirty diapers, hanging soap, a, a lot of different uh, alternative methods out there. And they also do make less uh, obvious type of fencing, which is more like a chicken wire fence that has a rubber coating on it that blends in more with uh, the landscape, and that might be something they would want to consider. Have you heard of any methods that that people use that you know for a fact don't work? Uh, Like I said, it really depends on how hungry the animals are. I mean, when they're really hungry, except for that eight-foot-plus high fence that's almost impenetrable and buried at the bottom because deer often go to the bottom of something before they go over it, so they'll nose up the bottom and sneak underneath it. So if you don't have the bottom staked down, it's not really going to be any benefit to you to have eight-foot-high fence but not staked at the bottom. Can they dig a bit? Uh, they don't often dig, but they put their noses right to the ground and use that to lift up the fence. And as soon as they get a little bit up, it's pretty easy for them to wiggle underneath uh, stuff. Now, having them eat your vegetation in the yard is one thing. Encountering them on the roads is another. And the potential for that increases during mating season, which occurs later this fall. What's the timeline for that? And what can people do to help avoid a car-deer collision? Uh, Certainly, uh, coming up during the breeding season, the males especially really don't pay much attention to their surrounding and, and what's going on. And obviously, with deer or moose or any of those type of animals, they're often most active right there early in the morning uh, when people are going to work and then in the evening time when people might be returning from work. It's really just driving the speed limit, using normal precautions, being very aware of your surroundings. Certainly texting and driving is illegal and using your phone is illegal, but everyone still, everyone still does it. Certainly avoiding those activities and making yourself more alert during those time periods is going to help your chances of avoiding a near potential crash with a deer. 
expecting the unexpected and maybe scanning the road and the sides of the roads as well, right? Yeah, I mean, using your head uh, high beams when you can and where appropriate when you're not blinding other motorists, and especially on days like today when it's kind of uh, drizzly and dreary, using certainly the speed limit and potentially slower than that in areas that you know uh, you've seen deer previously or you might be more encounter, uh, likely to encounter a deer while driving. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Andy Labonte. He is a wildlife biologist with the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. He is an expert in deer. Tell us about some of the diseases that have affected the deer population here in Connecticut. So last year, for the first time, uh, we documented hemorrhagic disease, which has mainly been a southern disease, uh, a virus that's transmitted through biting midges. And uh, last year, they also documented it, I believe, up in Canada and Ontario. So we're not sure how uh, the midges got here, the infected midges got here, or up into Canada, but it's kind of been suspected that maybe uh, during some windstorm events, tornado events, that could have actually forced these insects inland in where places that they hadn't previously been. So some type of some type of event, some type of wind event may have moved these midges further north than they'd been before. How does it present itself in deer? Unfortunately for the deer, because deer here had not been previously exposed, it most often results in the deer becoming extremely sick within a few days of being bitten. They uh, get high temperatures, and therefore they go seek out areas where there's water, and oftentimes are found either on the banks of water or in the water itself where they're trying to cool off, and essentially they end up uh, just becoming emaciated and, and dying. So this is also known as chronic wasting disease? Uh, actually, chronic wasting disease is something totally different, but some of the symptoms, uh, chronic wasting disease is more of a long term, could take anywhere from 18 to 18 months to a few uh, year, year and a half time period for the animal to die from it, whereas the hemorrhagic disease is more of uh, a, a weak time period for the most part. In some of the areas where they've had the disease, the hemorrhagic disease for uh, a long period of time, some animals actually have the abilities to survive and often show different types of symptoms from that. So is hemorrhagic disease uh, more common in Connecticut or less common compared to CWD? So last year we did document the hemorrhagic disease. Uh, we've been testing for chronic wasting disease since 2003, and we have not documented that here in Connecticut or anywhere in uh, the New England states as of yet something you're watching for though yeah we do test around 300 to 350 deer a year uh, all the new england states have been testing for it also uh, back in 2007 or, or so i believe new york state documented a couple of cases uh, that they had in a captive area a captive cervid facility and have not found any cases since then so they believe they're CWD-free. We're hoping they're CWD-free, and uh, hopefully we don't find anything else this year, and neither do they. Are there any precautions that people should take to protect protect themselves or, or report strange activity by deer if they think they, they might see a deer that is, is sick? 
Yeah, we always encourage uh, the general public or hunters alike to give us a call at the Wildlife Division and, you know, report those symptoms or email them to us. And, you know, a lot of times people see skinny deer out there or deer oftentimes that have been struck by a car that don't show any external signs of injury have often, after being transported to the pathology lab at the University of Connecticut, they found that they have broken bones and often show signs of a motor vehicle strike where the animal was able to survive and move off the roadway and just became emaciated or uh, wasn't doing well and had to be put down. Are there risks to humans uh, related to any of the diseases we discussed in deer? Uh, there's no risk with hemorrhagic disease to humans. It's not cannot be transmitted to humans. Uh, with chronic wasting disease, there has not officially been any link uh, to a human contracting uh, chronic wasting disease. It's been around since the 1960s, first started out in Colorado. Uh, but there are some very similar diseases that humans can contract that are quite similar to CWD and often most closely associated with mad cow disease in cattle and such things such as kuru from humans eating other humans is a very similar disease in humans, but there has not been specifically a link. It is recommended that humans don't consume known infected animals for any obvious reasons um, other than to make yourself as safe as possible. How about pets and livestock? Uh, similar to the hemorrhagic disease is blue tongue, and that's another variant. So there's several variants of hemorrhagic disease or similar type diseases that do affect livestock, uh, specifically cattle and goats and sheep are very susceptible to similar types of those diseases. So that's certainly more of a concern uh, than it is with chronic wasting disease, which is pretty much found in any member of the deer family. So moose, elk, white-tailed deer, mule deer, animals that are all related can uh, contract chronic wasting disease. Now, blue tongue or, or EHD, how many deer do you estimate are affected in Connecticut? Uh, we believe last year there might have been upwards of 70 or so deer that died around the Portland, Middletown area and a few south of there, all along the Connecticut River. So seemingly the Connecticut River corridor was the mechanism in which uh, most of these midges had traveled. And what that travel mechanism was, we can't really say. But interestingly, it was all along the Connecticut River where we documented cases of EHD or potential cases. And this disease can cause deer to act quite bizarrely, walk in circles, I believe, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, they could could walk in circles. Oftentimes, uh, like I said, they, they do just kind of seek out areas that are wet and, and damp to reduce their body temperature uh, to, to get colder. It's kind of similar to a deer that might have contracted rabies, uh, where with rabies, they tend to walk in circles a lot more. They they seek out that same kind of refuge to get cool. So they kind of show similar symptoms. This past week, we heard from another wildlife biologist at DEEP, who is a bear expert, 
that the incidence of bears breaking into homes and businesses was on the rise in Connecticut. There have been around two dozen so far this year compared to the annual average of around six or so. Do deer have any interaction with bears? Uh, I haven't heard of any interactions with deer breaking into homes, but as (laughs) far as uh, interactions between deer and bears, the the most of those interactions occur in the springtime when does are giving birth to their offspring. Bears really uh, key in on those newborns, be it that their high sense of smell, they can actually uh, find these newborn fawns that are supposed to be relatively unscent, you know, scent free. Uh, They have a keen ability to locate them and were one of the major causes of fawn mortality in our study we did several years ago in Northwest Connecticut. So they're they're picking off the fawn and, you know, maybe just waking up from hibernation or something and hungry, perhaps. Uh, cer- certainly they are hungry during that time of year, right when they get done uh, from the denning season. And there is a large abundance of deer, obviously, on the landscape. And they, at that young age, don't tend to get up and run. They're essentially... Uh, hidden in the grass, and that's their mechanism of survival is to stay and hide and not get up and run. And during that first two-week period of life, they're very susceptible to that high bear population. Are there any other natural predators of of deer in Connecticut? Uh, Yeah, along with that study, the actual highest uh, predation was from bobcats, in which we also have a continuously increasing bobcat population in the state. In terms of human encounters with deer, if you see one, you're more likely to see more than one, right? Uh, Certainly. uh, Deer are more of a family-oriented type of species. So a mother will give birth to her offspring, and the female offspring will tend to stick around close to her mother, whereas the male offspring may disperse out on their own um, further distances. But over time, these family groups build and they all learn from their mother. So if a deer is present in the community, gives birth to offspring, and it tends to be females, those females are going to stay very close. And then they build up to larger groups of 7 to 12-plus animals. It's really only determined by the amount of food and cover available that will limit the, uh, the number of deer there. You hear from people sometimes who say, you know, I, I love to see the the wildlife in my backyard. I'm going to put out food for deer. Is that recommended? Uh, we certainly don't recommend putting out food for any type of wild animal, especially deer, because oftentimes people even put out bird seed for birds, and that can attract turkeys, and then turkeys become very habituated to humans, and a lot of people believe that they become aggressive towards them in which they're not really becoming aggressive towards them, but can posture and certain behaviors look very aggressive, and sometimes they do. And the same thing can become uh, with deer and bears and anything else because all you're doing is attracting more prey species there for other animals. So putting out food, squirrels go use the food, bobcats might use the the squirrels. So it really becomes a, a... a cumulative area that builds upon, you know, just simply placing out food for one species, it keeps adding on top of that until you have a, a problem with 
some animal that comes into the yard that you did not intend to lure there. So let nature be nature. Yeah, that's that's the best policy is let nature be nature. Certainly by putting out supplemental feed, it disrupts the, the natural chain of things and it gets out of balance pretty quickly. He is Andrew Labonte, a wildlife biologist with the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.